Happy New Year, and welcome again to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. again I'm Christine Burns. Well it's New Year's Day as I record this and after a very hectic December it's time now to start thinking about what lies in store in the months ahead. The biggest thing for equality and diversity in 2009 is probably going to be the new Equality Bill which was announced in last month's Queen's Speech. Debate on that will begin soon in Parliament and we'll learn the precise details of what the government intends. During December, I spoke to several audiences about the 40-year history that brought us to this point. You can hear a version of that in an earlier episode. I plan to feature an update when there's been a chance to study the fine print of the bill. One thing we know already is that the single all-embracing equality duty probably won't come into force until 2010 or 11. That doesn't mean public bodies can sit back, though. I'm doing a lot of consulting at the moment on how to plan the way through the next two years whilst remaining compliant with the existing duties and laying the groundwork with the new groups who will be protected. Contact me if you'd like me to talk to your organisation about that. In the meantime, here is a keynote speech which I delivered back in October 2007 in front of an audience of 300 inspectors, social workers and service providers for the Commission for Social Care Inspection. I was invited to talk about the issues for trans people in social care. It was an unusual challenge as I'd lost my voice the night before and had two workshops to deliver in addition to the speech. However, I'll let one of the organisers, David Pennells, set the scene. One of the most important things, I say Helena actually talked about um, Age Concerns' approach to trans issues. We certainly within the Commission made a very conscious decision right at the beginning of our life as an LGBT workers group that we would include T um, as part of our group. Um, we wanted to make sure that transgender was clearly included in our activity and campaigning framework. Many trans people share similar experiences to LGB people and it can often be, in fact, more acute and more difficult for them. So the presence of trans issues on the agenda of this conference is really important to us. We're therefore extremely pleased to welcome Christine Burns, MBE, who is putting in a huge amount of effort to this conference today, as not only is she speaking to us now, but then she's actually off to run two workshops for us as well. And she's got a dicky throat, so um, we hope that she survives the day. Christine, you're very welcome. Testing, testing. Right. That isn't testing the sound system, that's testing my sound system. Uh, when I put myself to bed last night with lots of neurothen and, uh, and hope at 7 o'clock, I had no voice at all, uh, and now I've got to speak for about three hours today, so this is going to be a voyage of discovery, I think. Um, let's think about some numbers here. Um, there are about 6.8 million people who live in the Northwest, about 11% of the UK's population. Over 600,000 of those uh, are identified as having a BME background, but perhaps it's not quite as readily realised that uh, also about 650,000 people who live in the Northwest have got an LGBT background. So we're not dealing with a small minority issue here. We're dealing with a very large part of the population. 
Now, trans people are only a very small part of that 8 to 10% of that population. We're about a thousandth of the size of lesbian, gay and bisexual people's uh, community. Uh, but as David said a moment ago, some of the issues that are felt are very often felt most acutely. And to lead us into that, I'd like to do another little exercise with you. Um, I'd like to think, you to think about somebody that you know quite well, but not that well. So I usually say that if you're a journalist, think about your editor. If you're a politician, think about the prime minister. So if you are, a, I suppose, an inspector, you could think about uh, the, uh, the head of the commission. Or if you are a, uh, running a service, then, of course, you could think about your inspector. Right. Now, I'd like you to think about whether you can actually place a gender on that person. Is that a man or a woman, the person you're thinking about? It shouldn't take you very long to do that. But I'd like to pose you a question. Have you ever seen that person's genitals? <laughs> I guess... There are no journalists here. <laughs> I think the response to that perhaps underlines the point that actually gender, the thing that, that perhaps we note first about somebody whom we meet, is not actually determined by what's between your legs. It's actually the most vital thing that we communicate to anybody else that uh, we, we deal with. It's the first thing you want to know. It's the first thing you know when somebody comes into the world. Is it a boy or a girl? And, I, and from that moment on, and a cursory look between the child's legs, the whole framework of actually how they're going to be treated is determined. But actually, once we put clothes on people, then our gender goes on in our adult lives to be determined by how we present to people. So if the way that you feel about how you are as a person and how you want to be regarded as a person doesn't fit the expectations that other people have according to how they see you, then there is no communication, really. Somebody is living a lie. And when a trans person comes out, actually they are beginning the road to telling the truth about themselves. Because everything that went before was, was a falsehood. And actually when they are, present themselves as they feel themselves to be inside, they're not pretending to be a woman or pretending to be a man. They're expressing to you that that is what they are. And that's the most vital thought to actually keep in mind. Another little experiment with you. Um, trans people are supposed to be incredibly rare, but... Could you put your hand up if you know somebody who's a trans person? Well, that's amazing. I usually think I'm doing well when I get about 75%, but I think we've practically got everybody in the room. So although we are incredibly rare, we must be putting ourselves about a bit. <laughs> Actually, trans... Sexual people, uh, I'm going to explain these terms, uh, account for about 1 in 11,900 of the adult population. That's why I say that we are about 1,000th size of LGB. Um, so that's fairly rare, but that still, if you do the sums, 
means that there are about 5,000 transsexual people in the UK. Now I'm actually going to define my terms here because transsexual is a medical term. It refers to people who feel that dissonance that I spoke about so very strongly that they actually need to take steps, permanent steps in their life to, to alter the way in which they present. And they do that, that's by taking hormones and in some cases undergoing surgeries to alter their body so that people can actually see them for who they are. Just to put that into further perspective, because I don't want to leave out another group of people who actually uh, experience very similar experiences, and that is people with intersex conditions. Now, there are about 70 different ways in which you can be not quite male or female. Some of them are the sort of classic obvious ones, like actually having bits of both sets of genitals. Some of, and the majority of them are actually quite invisible. Uh, and you'd actually have to have a microscope and to examine the contents of their cells to be able to tell. But uh, certainly there are instances where there are people who are going around quite innocently thinking that they're men with XX chromosomes, and there are plenty of people going around with XY chromosomes who look to everybody and consider themselves to be women as well. Each of those conditions is incredibly rare, but actually collectively it means that one in a hundred people, in fact, probably more than one in a hundred people, has an intersex condition. So it says something for the denial that goes on in our society, that something that common, because think about it, that means that there's probably an intersex person in your street. These things are incredibly common, and yet we brush them under the carpet. And because we brush them under the carpet, we turn them into a source of guilt. I'd like to tell you about some real life stories now um, and they illustrate different ways in which you might come across trans or intersex people. The first example is uh, an intersex person, her name was uh, Julie, she died a couple of years ago, aged just 34 and uh, she was for a period of time a service user in a um, company that I once worked for. In her childhood because of her visibly intersex status, she was abused by her parents. She was given drugs. Um, she had a pretty raw time. And so by the time that she re re uh, arrived at adulthood, age of 18, it's probable, probable the way in which she was brought up accounted for a large slice of the mental health problems that she had. But her mental health problems were nothing to the problems that are actually seem to be felt by everybody around her. The police would ask us, is it a man or a woman? Because we don't know. And she often found herself in the company of the police because she got a bit violent. Um, she couldn't cuddle anybody without it being a problem. If she cuddled a man, which was her, generally her disposition, then people were concerned about the fact that she had a bit of a penis was that uh, yeah, a, a, an abuse problem. They didn't know what to do with it. If she cuddled a woman, that could be a problem. And actually when she was, uh, she left our service, uh, and then as we rather thought would happen, she ended up on the streets and was perhaps trying to approach drop-in centres. They didn't know what to do with her. How were they going to accommodate her? Which sort of service were they going to put her into? Yes, I say her because it was quite clear that she actually expressed that identity. <coughs> But that's the problem, actually, to remember that 
her condition was not actually a problem to her itself, herself. It was actually a problem to everybody else. So in a way, she had something very much in common with uh, many disabled people who would express that their problem is not the inability to use their legs, but the fact that people built steps on the way into the building. Intersex people's problems, trans people's problems, are a social condition. They're not a medical condition. It means that the solution actually lies in our hands. We shouldn't actually expect to blame them for the fact that we can't cope with their existence. I'd like to take you on to another example now. Um, this isn't their real names, but I'll call them David and Angela. Um, David is a trans man, and because of changes in law about three years ago, he's been able to marry his, uh, his now wife. He's very well settled down, and because trans men, uh, when they take testosterone and rapidly masculinize, you really wouldn't know that he had this background, which meant he started out in life with, with a vagina. Um, he and his wife was feeling so settled that they actually wanted to, uh, to put themselves forward to adopt uh, a child. But David being very wise of the, the kinds of problems and, and, and the way in which people react if they find out, felt that it was best to disclose to the social workers that he was being evaluated by his trans background. At this point, that aspect, that sole aspect, which never ever affected his life otherwise, took over. It became the dominant discourse in all correspondence about David. The social workers wanted to write a Form F, which is the, the form that describes a, a prospective adoptive couple, really dominated around that aspect. They wanted to have permission to be able to advise uh, social workers for the children they were referring to of his trans background, even though this actually was not at all relevant to him and his wife's ability to, uh, to be good adoptive parents. What's more interesting is that his wife suddenly became a problem person as well. Her attitude in feeling a bit aggrieved about the way she was treated became a problem. She was abusive. She was non-cooperative. She was now not a heterosexual woman in love with this rather nice man, but actually she was somebody who was with a transsexual. So she became a problem. Let's move on to Simon. Now, Simon, again, not his real name, is a social worker. He'd been a social worker for many years. Again, he's a trans man. He started life as a girl. He'd very settled down. None, nobody he knew worked with him. Uh, sorry, nobody knew, knew his background. But when, uh, three years ago, it became necessary for him to register with the General um, Social Care Council, he became uh, exposed to enormous problems because the registration process required him to present a number of documents to his manager to photocopy and then um, witness to the GSCC. And suddenly he was posed the problem of actually being statutorily outed by the process, a process that was unwilling to bend to actually meet his needs. So he actually had a choice. He could either out himself and take the chances of how he would be responded to, but know always in future that his colleagues would be gossiping about him and his trans history would be a matter of um, discussion among his, his peers. Or he could leave social work because, of course, 
with the arrival of that registration process, it became impossible to practice as a social worker any other way. And my last example is Maggie. Again, not a, um, not a real name, but uh, just an example of many of the cases I deal with. Maggie was a, um, a manager of a care home. And of course, she came up against the problems of uh, Criminal Records Bureau um, disclosure process. Now, actually, there is a way of working the, oh, sorry, of operating with the disclosure process, so you do not have to reveal your former name to, uh, to, to the people that you work with. Uh, because, of course, in most trans people's cases, that actually is something of a bit of a giveaway. Um, but even so, she then was uh, subject to further risk because um, the requirements of the care regulations at that time meant that uh, she was required to have her documents, her um, birth certificate and her um, passport photocopied and kept on the records of the property. And actually at that time when the, red, the care regulations first came along, there was a bit of an inconsistency. If you worked in a, in a care home for children, the requirements were different from, what, uh, from if you worked in uh, something, uh, a care home for younger adults and so on. Now that's actually now been resolved, but unfortunately there are a lot of providers who still think that they actually have to demand a birth certificate from somebody. And although people can now change their birth certificates under certain circumstances so that they wouldn't be outed in that way, uh, there are many cases of people who can't for very good reasons. One reason being that if you're already married to somebody, then in order to obtain legal recognition, you actually have to divorce that person. And that's pretty high cost in return for accessing your right to privacy. And I don't know if anybody reads the sun, Last week, uh, I don't, but uh, I told some people do, there was, a, there, was a, there was a piece in there about a domiciliary care worker in Blackpool. Now, she was being asked to do things which were outside the care plan that she was allocated, and so she reported the family of uh, her um, care service user to her supervisor. The family retaliated, not by complaining to the local authority who were funding the provider, but by going straight to the son, who then portrayed this lady who was trying to put her background behind her as a he throughout their article and a problem because the mother, sorry, the daughter of this, this old lady that she was looking after objected to the idea of somebody with a trans background uh, showering or bathing her mother and it became an issue. So what I want to draw out of all of those examples is that trans people are very much a part of the, uh, of the care um, framework. We can be your colleagues, uh, we can be care workers, we can be managers, inspectors, social workers. We can be next of kin. Um, my mother has got Alzheimer's. She's been advancing through it for five years, so I'm very consciously aware that I'm becoming uh, somebody who's very concerned now about, about care of, of my relations. Um, we could be service users. Uh, we can be adopters. Um, we can be children because 
every trans person was a child once and we're actually beginning to now scratch the surface and understand and be able to listen to people under 18 who express, already know, as I did when I was four or five years old, very strongly how we feel about our gender. And likewise, there are older people. There's something that faces us all is we're all going to get old. And for trans people, it's an immense fear because there is all the normal fears that we've expressed in terms of LGB people's concerns about background and understanding family relationships, but also the fear of loss of our own control and autonomy. There are many trans men who've never had a phalloplasty. They don't have a penis. They, if you look between their legs, you'll find a vagina. So how you toilet somebody like that is a very sensitive issue. There are trans women who, because they transitioned relatively late in life, and it's only a relatively modern phenomenon now that people are able to transition earlier uh, and fare much better as a result. If you transition late in life, the chances are that the hairs growing in your face, which have been there for the whole of your adult life, are not going to stop, no matter how much electrolysis or treatment you have. So there's a concern of little old ladies going into care who are actually very sensitive about the need to shave every day and even more concerned about the fact that as if they uh, start to exhibit dementia, what are they going to say and how are people going to react around them? And is their integrity going to be intact? Because we've all grown up with the knowledge that some of the people we knew were, for instance, having spent a life expressing what gender they were, were actually buried by their relations in the opposite gender, a complete eradication of everything that their lives stood for. So there's a lot to understand about trans people and as I said before I want to restress that actually the problems are actually a social issue. It's not, these aren't problems that are associated inherently with being trans, they're actually associated with people's inability to deal with the fact that they're trans. And I've illustrated by some of the examples I've picked that also yeah, we're very sensitive about protecting vulnerable people in this field and rightly so and we want to have very strong provisions to ensure that we do. But very, be very careful how you apply those, because what I see over and over again is people in their blind zeal managing to transform trans people themselves into vulnerable people with no consciousness of the, uh, of the effects that that can have and the, and the fact that it, it causes people to have to give up to jobs that they love. So... I think there are a number of ways in which perhaps this sector has unfortunately failed um, trans people in the past, but seeing you all this morning, seeing you know, packed in the aisles here, it is such an enormous encouragement to see that you're all here and you're all listening and so many people actually already know a trans person. So thank you for listening. I hope that's been helpful to you.